Listen, there has never been a better time to invest in self-storage, and there's no better team than ours to show you how to do it because we wrote the book on how to invest in self-storage. Literally, we created the best-selling home study system titled How to Find, Evaluate, Purchase, and Manage Self-Storage Facilities. We have helped thousands of people launch and scale their self-storage business and have become the nation's go-to resource for all things self-storage. That's because we not only talk the talk, we walk the walk day in and day out since 2005 through now. Two recessions and amassing a 2.5 million square feet of self-storage, totaling over 15,000 doors nationwide. There is nobody else that has more experience in self-storage that is teaching people how to invest in self-storage. So if you're ready to launch and scale your self-storage business, then go to selfstorageinvesting.com. Click on the events tab to grab your ticket to the upcoming Self-Storage Academy. So that again is selfstorageinvesting.com. Click on the events tab. Seating is limited. And on behalf of our team, we look forward to seeing you then. Take care. This is the Self-Storage Podcast, where we share the knowledge and skills from the industry's leading investors, developers, and operators to help you launch and grow your self-storage business. Your host, Scott Myers, over the past 16 years, has acquired, developed, converted, and syndicated over 2 million square feet of self-storage nationwide with the help of his incredible team at selfstorageinvesting.com, who has helped thousands of people achieve greatness in self-storage. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Self-Storage Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Myers, and this week's guest is Richard Wilson with the Family Office Club. Richard is a third-generation Eagle Scout, husband and father of three, and currently lives in Scottsdale, Arizona. He is the CEO and founder of the Family Office Club, the number one largest association of over 3,000 registered ultra-wealthy families and their family offices. Richard has helped to create and formalize over 150 family offices and counts a shark from Shark Tank, Several billionaires, many REITs, and 700-plus investors with an average net worth of $28 million, all as his clients. Richard works with clients through InvestorClub.com and the Doctors Investor Club, where he helps investors access various pre-screened direct investments. And his 22-person team operates multiple media platforms, including Dentist Investors, LLC, InvestorResidences.com, Billionaires.com, and CommercialRealEstate.com. Richard has also written three number one bestseller family office books on single family offices, how to start a family office, and sent a millionaire strategies. And he has obtained his MBA and studied postmaster psychology through Harvard University's ALM division. Richard and I met a number of years ago when we were looking to bring in somebody to our self-storage mastermind who was an expert in family offices. And that's what led me to Richard. And since then, we've become friends. He has been back to our mastermind several times. And we also have done a number of, been involved in a number of business opportunities together as well. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with my friend, Richard Wilson. Richard, good to see you again and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. Well, certainly things have changed since our last episode and the last time we had you here. The world has changed. The economy looks a little bit different with rising interest rates and some of the lenders have put their pencils down on many of the projects. But at the time of this recording, uh, give us an idea of what you're seeing on your end with the family offices and some of your private investors and how they're approaching this economy. Sure. Well, as you already know, a lot of deals are being repriced that were under contract and then interest rates changed during the process of closing. And people don't want to have to go back out to the market, reshop the deal, go back to buyers. They're going to adjust their prices anyways. And by the time the net deal closes, rates could change again. 
you might have to reprice again. So what's happening is people are getting 2%, 5%, even up to 10% reductions in prices at the finish line on some of these assets. That's one trend I'm seeing. Another one is that some areas that are more remote are more valued because maybe they were less overpriced, but because of interest rates growing and people being fearful of valuations moving down, if there's not a big city center or really strong demographic trends, people are being a little bit more cautious on where they're investing in big development deals, at least for ground up development, because you not only have the risk of going to market at a time which might not be ideal, but also the risk of construction financing being pulled or having it be harder to rely upon financing partners you have in the past in case the economy changes for the worse. So we're seeing a good amount of that. We're also seeing a lot of co-GP deal activity. Yesterday, we closed a $30 million transaction with a $4 billion REIT we look for you know, deal partners for and source deals for. And it took us nine months to negotiate that agreement. We finally got that closed just this week. And we are seeing that more and more is that the billion dollar, multi-billion dollar groups especially two, three, four billion and more are working with sponsors that manage just 100 million, 400 million, et cetera, and have a solid team, but don't have the firepower on the capital side of things, maybe to move as quickly on things or with as much confidence and conviction. And they'll partner together by having one source of deal and the other fund the majority or all of it. So seeing even more of that than we did just a year or two ago, those are the major kind of three changes that we're seeing in terms of like deal activity or deals getting done or not done lately. Let's do a little deeper dive into a co-GP arrangement and how you see that playing out into the market that we're in uh, right now. Some other folks may be sitting on the sidelines as well, meaning the stock market folks are folks that are may typically get into a syndicated deal, an individual syndicated deal. But now if you've got some folks that are either looking at a portfolio or larger projects, whether it be developments or not, it may be a little more difficult for them as a syndicator to raise capital. So if they were to come to you or to go out and seek out some of these REITs that have carved out a portion of their funds to allow them to move a little bit faster. What does a rough structure look like for a syndicator who's looking to partner with somebody on that end? Sure. All different structures out there. Some will say at the forefront, oh, well, we'll give you a brokerage fee for sourcing that. And then the savvy sponsor will say, well, now it's worth a lot more than that. I'm not a real estate broker. We really want to be partners in running this, et cetera. And then maybe as a secondary way of working with sponsors, then they may give some of the promote of the deal. That would be a typical way just to include them on part of the promote as a co-GP for sourcing the deal. Other groups will provide a little bit of equity in the deal for sourcing it, or we'll give you a choice of a fee at closing or a little bit of equity and roll it into equity and then part of the promote. Those are the most common ways because then if the deal doesn't perform, then the group who sourced the deal doesn't get nearly as much credit which in some ways is fair, but in other ways, if the other big brother partner is the one operating it, it might not be their fault if it doesn't work out, if they didn't turn over the units fast enough or reposition it well in the marketplace, et cetera. And I'm seeing the most number of these deals get done in multifamily, but that's where there's the most number of transactions. So that's kind of what you would expect anyways. And storage and then industrial seem to be the next two kind of food groups that are this is most popular in, in terms of uh, where we're seeing the most volume. And I think that a lot of people just are not familiar with how co-GP deals work. So they don't even know that this is an option. And they may see big companies as just a competitor to them. When really, if the deal is excellent, then there's a real hunger to capture that deal and put dry powder to work by these large institutions. They should really be seen as 
peers to collaborate with and to partner with. And after you figure out how to do one deal with someone and you've treated each other well, then it's much easier to do a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh deal. And you can build a few of those types of relationships. You have three to five kind of strategic big brother partners to go to. It'd be kind of the ideal versus just working with one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. And as we're looking at also the appetite of some of the folks that we're putting projects in front of right now, we've always been in the position being strictly self-storage where this is the asset class that does uh, during well during a pandemic and during a recession. And right now we haven't seen really an uptick or a decline in uh, interest level in our projects or in our fund in our asset class. But what, are you seeing any other type of shift out there in the marketplace right now, Richard, amongst the asset classes where some are being viewed a little more favorably than others as we look to the change in the economy? Yeah. In multifamily, I feel like it's been, even though it it typically performs well, like storage, I feel like it's been hurt a little bit more than other groups. It's still a high volume area. There's still a lot of transactions, a lot of capital to get put to work. And if you really have a true value add approach, then in essence, you're boosting that NOI and you're forcing that appreciation. But I think right now is when we really test the ability of somebody to really add that value versus just playing off of market momentum and renovating 20% of units and then flipping it for a big IRR. So if someone doesn't really have trust and conviction that you're able to do that, then it's going to be very hard to raise the capital because a lot of people know that the prices were at records high and then interest rates went up. So some people are going to be damaged by that if they didn't really add value, didn't really boost the NOI. So I think that I've seen multifamily come under the most scrutiny and criticism or just people being a little more skeptical and careful. I haven't seen that at all in the storage space specifically yet. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, one of the strategies that we've had is we've seen, this will be the third recession that I've been through, and we've seen in the past where in some cases, some of these operators weren't very good at building value, or they just assumed that the market and the wind behind it uh, was going to continue to increase the value of their projects without a whole lot of input. And then they find themselves in a different cost structure and interest rate environment and therefore evaluation. And so something that was either in development or in, in lease up may not have reached its full potential before they have to refinance. And that is a time where we found our, the ability to either purchase them or to come into some type of a partnership and get it across the finish line and, or essentially get it to lease up or to cash flowing position, whatever that may be. And so we've always kept an eye out in the market for those. And we we'll probably see some of those opportunities coming out to market here within the next, I would say, 90 days or so once we get through that cycle. And it's not uh, being opportunistic. I think that is one of the ways in which uh, we have been able to approach this market. But that being said, taking a step back and looking at investors or syndicators, promoters, what are the other opportunities that you see with this change in the market that maybe out there for investors to take a look at on the active side. Yeah, I think before having an all cash offer didn't mean a whole lot to people. I think it means mm-hmm. a lot more now because mm-hmm. they may have opportunities that they're seeing that they want to move on to. And that opportunity may be gone by the time a 60 day, 90 day close happens. Mm-hmm. And then also they know that interest rates may change again. They've probably heard of broken sales or things not getting done that they thought would get done with other peers in the industry. So for storage groups or mobile home park groups or short-term rental or other groups where the dollar figures are not always these huge dollars, it could be helpful to close in cash. And you could always source some financing term sheets to have some confidence that the project is underwritable by a bank and that you could get financing for it. So you don't leave yourself with an asset that can't be financed. You want to Mm -hmm. de-risk that for sure, but coming in all cash and then financing it the two months afterwards at your own pace could be a way to free up your capital again after closing while still getting the advantage 
making an all cash offer and closing in 21 days instead of doing a normal closing process. And, you know, when the market was really hot in Q4 last year, we picked up an asset at a 31% discount to its price per square foot that it should have been purchased at partially because it was a broken sale that we got wind of. And then also because we offered all cash and closed in 17 days. But with in that market, it didn't mean as much people are making all cash offers more often now. I think that with the bank financing risk being higher, that you know those are a little bit more valuable to make. So if it's possible for someone to, and you can de-risk the fact that maybe a bank wouldn't finance the property, and if you can make sure you know that they would before doing that, then it's a good way to maybe get some deals done at a, a better price than you would otherwise to give you some cushion in case the market goes down more. Mm-hmm. Well, and if the market does go down more, Richard, you've been doing this a long time and you are widely regarded as one of the best organizations, individuals to go out there that has their ear to the ground, that represents family offices and folks that are investing passively. And so when Richard Wilson speaks, there's a whole lot of people listening. So that being said, again, there's a lot of fear out there with this, the looming recession and what we're seeing in the marketplace. And that's when people begin to lean in even more. And I imagine there your events are probably increasing. Your podcast is probably seeing more people listen and listening longer. There's a lot more attention being paid to what you were saying. So how has your messaging changed? How are you combating that? And how are you letting your existing folks that are in your tribe that invest with you? What is that message that you're sending to them right now, as well as new folks that are just coming to learn more about family offices and what you're doing? What is the message that for folks that are a little bit scared and wondering what to do and where to go? Tell me how you're either allaying their fears or helping them to be cautious. What is that message that you're sending out to them? Sure. One quick thing is that it looks like even if we continue to go through a recession, that inflation is staying here, at least for the time being. So real estate can be a good place to be through an inflationary environment, of course, that's one thing. Most important thing is that if you have a really strong go-to strategy, if you're a billion-dollar family or a $50 million net worth family or a $5 million net worth family, you probably should be focused on just one or two types of businesses and just one or two industries and be scaling those up and not scattering your investments all over the place. You can leave that to your wealth advisor to diversify you in the markets. But for your direct investments in your operating businesses, you should probably be focused on just one or two areas. And because of that, a stronger business model or stack of mental models you have in the marketplace, the more that you can take advantage of others advertising less or take advantage of others being overly cautious. And you can complete the acquisitions that others did not they weren't able to make sense of. And so there's a book I read recently by Tillman Furtada, who's the founder of Rainforest Cafe and 600 other restaurants. He owns the Houston Rockets. He's got a really great book on Audible I just listened to. And he talks about eating the weak in a market like this. Those who are unstable and don't have excellent teams might be able to acquire them and get them at a 20 or 30% discount to what you could have before. And ideally, you're so dialed in on your strategic business model, whatever it is, that you're able to see deals first exclusively at better valuations. And we always encourage our members to focus on acquiring strategic choke points on building you know, platforms within their business like you have with your podcast and your community. You have got a marked advantage over others in knowing what's happening in self-storage, knowing the pricing, knowing JV partners, co-GP partners, navigating financing sources, and you'll be able to react quicker and with more conviction than somebody that doesn't have a self-storage you know, mastermind group like you have, right? So we encourage everyone to figure out what is that mm-hmm. platform model? What are those choke points? Because I think that's what makes the real difference because the true professionals aren't trying to time the market. 
they're always just stacking new mental models on top of the ones they have already and adjusting and being agile, but really navigating the market constantly based on where it is. Because when the market's going well, you say, oh, wow, it's at record prices. I don't want to overpay. When it's going down, you say, oh, I don't want to buy. It's going down. I'm going to catch a falling knife and they'll never do anything. So there's times to be more bullish or more optimistic or have more debt or less debt or different links of debt or type of debt for assets in different cities. Of course, you need to adjust strategies, but the people who do the best that I know of, they have momentum behind them in up and down markets and they don't just sit back and do nothing for two years while they wait to see what happens. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a a really important point. And we try to emphasize that a lot at our the capital raising workshops that we host at the Family Office Club. And we try to emphasize that at our investor summits. And then the last thing I'd say is that we have seen an uptick in interest for conferences and the, the charter membership in our investor club. We have expanded our Family Office Super Summit coming up this winter. So we're going to have a night of cocktails and then three full days of event content. So we'll have 150 speakers on stage over those three days. Wow. And probably about 1,500 people to 2,000 people in attendance. And uh, I think there's a lot of demand right now to figure out who you should be working with and who you should be listening to and what models work for your specific focus, hopefully, which is in just one or two areas. Mm-hmm. All good. And as we've navigated through this again once before, we recognize that no, this is not the time, as you mentioned, to uh, sitting back for two years and uh, doing nothing. This is the reason why we got so good at and, and need, realized we needed to double down on how to raise private equity and to grow those relationships and build the back office because we were waiting for such a time as this because we knew that there would be opportunities for the folks that didn't build value in their facilities or that have these abandoned development projects because their capital stack changed midstream and what they had before didn't doesn't pencil out now because their capital has changed and we know that there's going to be opportunities uh, to do so. That is the reason why it is very important to be able to align yourselves, to be able to have access to capital and lending those lending relationships to be able to run in while everybody else is running out. The only other thing I was going to say that's like slightly unrelated, but it's very directly related in my mind, but might seem a little ancillary to some people listening here is that partially because of COVID and it being pandemic is that the focus of the ultra wealthy more on their own health and Mm. optimizing their ability to have focused energy on their business, but actually live longer and live a more productive life. And, you know, some of them work more remotely now than part of the year in in Spain or in Bali, et cetera. I think just really emphasize the importance of that. And we've had many clients who either do exactly this or equivalent to this, they'll own a Rolls Royce and the oil change might be $4,200 on that. And they might be worth hundreds of millions of dollars or $20, $30 million. And they don't take the $900 per year to get a biomarker blood test and see what they're deficient in. But mm-hmm. they'll spend $4,200 on that oil change for the Rolls Royce, which they'll get bored mm-hmm. of in two or five years and trade mm-hmm. out for some other car. You can't trade out your body, right? So mm-hmm. it's not all of it. So a lot of people just have not made that a big priority. And we sent out an email blast on that today to our group because at our last real estate summit, we had a thousand people at that event and about 40 speakers on stage. And we had Craig on stage, Capella. He's written a book called The Fantastic Life. And it took him, he got to earning seven figures as a real estate broker investor. He's done 3,800 investment deals and brokerage transactions. And he became ultra wealthy through all of his hard work, but he slept three or four hours a night. And the doctor said, that's why he got cancer. He didn't take care of his health. And Mm -hmm. he used to be a professional athlete. And so he had to learn the lesson the hard way, come back from cancer. And then now every morning he goes on a hike at sunrise. He does a workout later in the day and he tries to be 
in excellent health and work out twice a day. But his message at our event was, it's very easy to complicate your life and it's very hard to focus your energy, but you should learn from his example of getting cancer not to get to that point first before you make these changes because sometimes it's too late. Once you find out you have cancer, sometimes can't be treated. Or once you find out that you ignored your kids and now they're all graduated from college and whatever, it might be too late, right? So that's something I've seen coming up more since COVID. And I think it's something that we're trying to share in our community. And I think that if we can equip people with the types of ideas you share in your mastermind and with ideas about acquiring choke points and building platforms and being ultra healthy and ultra wealthy, then those things combined could give them a real edge in the marketplace over other people that aren't collaborative and don't think about co-GP deals and don't think about being so strategic, not just with their own health, but with their business assets and how everything kind of interplays with each other. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that message, Richard. And 100%, it's one thing to just say that because we all know and have heard all the stories that you can't take it with you. And what's the one thing that the person says on their deathbed that they wish they had back? And it's usually one of two things. It's the relationships because they did miss out on their kids and you can't get it back or that I would have paid attention to my health <laughs> that, because by that it's too late. So that's real. And those words are spoken by real people that have real regret. And that is a bitter pill to swallow when you've got cancer because you neglected to intentionally neglected your health or that you chose work or tasks over the people around you in your life that you loved. And so I will just reiterate that because that is a big part of what I'm teaching my kids as well as those that anybody around me that will hear in my organization from my staff to the folks in our mastermind or anywhere else that we do all this and the illusion is that we're doing it so that we have more time for our kids and then we can go out and exercise and have time to do this and that and then we grind for 30 or 40 years only to find out it was too late and we get it all backwards and then we have time on our hands but then our health is shot and our relationships are even worse. So that's a real deal. The new secret power now is not the latest software or hiring the best person. It's sleep. You got to get sleep and you got to take care of your body and the rest will take care of itself. As they say, after that, that is the best secret weapon that you can have. Right. Yeah. A lot of people have heard stuff like that before. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to be healthy. You got to sleep. And they might think in their position, they just need to grind even harder than ever, uh, et cetera. But make this really practical. We're coming up with a list, like 30 to 50 things you can do to be ultra healthy. Mm. So that you can look at these and say, oh, okay, well, out of these 50 things I could do to be ultra healthy, it'd probably be good if I was doing at least 30. So what's my score out of 30? And mm-hmm. if you're only doing two out of these 30 things, <laughs> then maybe just put some things on your calendar and tell your executive assistant, hey, go buy this for me. Go mm-hmm. enroll me in this thing and make me go once a week and put it on my calendar or mm-hmm. whatever. Because uh, a lot of podcasts and books, you know, they say these nice things like, oh, you should do more proactive tax planning. Well, what does that mean without a practical cheat sheet or a one-page mm-hmm. infographic? A lot of people don't have time to read big books and whatnot. So we're, we're putting together like this ultra healthy checklist and we'll be coming out with that later this year within the family office club and just sharing it for free with them, with everybody via our email list, et cetera. Cause I think it just will kind of do good and spread the right message about the type of membership that we're building and the type of people we're trying to work with and, and create value with. You know? Great. Well, Richard, once again, I so much thank you for your time and appreciate our time together. And even more so when I'm either at one of your events or you're at our mastermind. So I'm looking forward to the time that we're both in the same room again together. And before that, if you would, why don't you leave Storage Nation with, I guess, maybe a book that you've read recently or something that you've gifted, a book that you've gifted a lot recently that's made an impact in people's lives. Yeah, there's a book by Steve Schwarzman. Let me look up the name so I don't get it wrong here. I think it's called How It's Done. And uh, What It Takes. What It Takes Hmm. is what it's called by Steve Schwarzman. And I'm about to read that book for the second time. Steve is a billionaire founder of the Blackstone Group. And Hmm. the way that he thinks about his business, I just find very relatable compared to how some billionaires 
say they think. You know, I've been reading a lot of books from billionaires this year. That's the only podcasts and books I'm consuming. We bought billionaires.com recently. And we're posting interviews there that we're doing with them, et cetera. And that that's the number one book of any of the billionaires who have read is What It Takes by Steve Schwarzman. And his ability to grow the core of his business and then have ancillary parts to his platform that are kind of built in a strategic way without him getting distracted personally. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just a really fine balance because a lot of people in the world will say, oh, just focus on one thing. But your one thing might be your funnel, your platform, your yeah. building, how you define that changes mm -hmm. the scope of what you can do. And so mm -hmm. I just really encourage everyone to check out his book on Audible because it was just a ton of value for me at least. Yeah, perfect. And I will do that as well. I haven't read that one, Richard. So I appreciate that. And so does the rest of us. So Richard, once again, thank you so much for your time. It was uh, great to uh, see you and catch up and share a little bit more of your wisdom and some of your strategies and how you're approaching this market with the, the rest of our listeners here. So with that, enjoy the rest of your day and looking forward to seeing you and the rest of Storage Nation sometime very soon. All right, take care. Hey gang, wait, three things before you leave. First, don't forget to subscribe to the Self Storage Podcast and turn on your notifications so you never miss another episode. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review if you like the show. Second, be sure to share your favorite episodes and more via Instagram and don't forget to tag us. And lastly, head to the links in the show description and hit the following subscribe button on Twitter and Facebook to get a front row seat as we grow and scale our business and bring you along with us. Take care.